Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. On William James's Does Consciousness Exist? Part 1. Consciousness is a a strange word. I find that it's a word that's always bothered me. Like, I've never liked the word consciousness, and I always try to find synonyms or other words to substitute for it. That's one of the reasons why this essay by William James, Does Consciousness Exist?, is so was so interesting to me when I first saw the title. And then when I read it, I was pretty much blown away by it, even though it's a very difficult text. And it it took a couple of readings to at least to get an idea of what I think he's talking about. Yeah, I I just found that in this particular podcast to discuss the idea of consciousness itself in light of this essay, but also in a wider frame could lead to some weird revelations of some sort. So like I said, it's a it's a it's a hard essay. What? How many times did you read it, Phil? I couldn't even tell you because the way I've been reading is like I'll read a few paragraphs, and then at the point at which my poor brain just gives up, I just stop, and then I'll start again the next day, and I'll read the same stuff that I read the day before, but it'll be slightly clearer, so I'll read a little bit further. And I've just been doing this iterative process until the essay has slowly started to resolve into some kind of picture in my mind. Right. Whether or not that's a an accurate picture or a picture that was intended by William James, I'm not sure. Right. But at least I have something to say about this essay. Good. What's what's kind of interesting, what makes this a, a weird essay in a sense, is that in the end what he's defending is something like naive realism, I find. That what, what he's yeah, defending in the end is an understanding of reality that really kind of parallels the everyday, naive, unreflective, let's call it, sense of reality that, that we use in our daily lives. Like that things are just things and, and there's, there's no underlying substance that explains things. And he's doing this because he also doesn't like the word consciousness at all. In fact, he says in the first couple of pages, he... He says that he's been telling his students for some years now that there is no such thing as consciousness. So that would put him in a camp with someone like Daniel Dennett, who wrote the famous Consciousness Explained, the classic of um, materialist metaphysics or lack thereof. or It's claiming to be non-metaphysical, but in the end, it it packs all kinds of metaphysical assumptions. But he's not in that camp. In the end, he's arguing for something like a kind of materialism but not the materialism of someone like, let's say, you know, Stephen Hawking. But just to start with the idea of consciousness itself, so I was, I've been thinking about this word as I've read this essay a couple of times, and it seems to me that there are at least four ways in which we use that word in our discourse. In, in like vernacular speech, right. just every day. But also technical, in technical uh, context. So. Okay. There's, there's like there's a version of consciousness or a definition of consciousness that we all kind of agree with. And that would be what I'm calling now the empirical way of conceiving consciousness. So consciousness means the state of being aware of being sentient. Okay. So a person is 
conscious while they're awake, unconscious while they're asleep. Although if they're dreaming, they have a kind of consciousness of their dreams, right? A plant is sentient, but not conscious, right? Like you wouldn't say that the plant is conscious of things. It's sentient because it's reacting in a kind of... Um, well, yeah, like the sun, like, yeah, it's it's the nature of its physical constitution that when the sun right. is up, that like sunflowers will turn towards the sun. That's just how they're made. Right. Uh, but that's But that doesn't mean that they turn their faces to the sun because they love the sun. Right, exactly. There's no conscious thought there. No, exactly. Um, There might be something like conscious thought, and maybe we'll get there, but it's not the conscious thought that's linguistically contrived, the conscious thought that we think of as intellectual thought, like the humans use. Yeah. We use language. You know, but some some animals, like... um, crows for example can learn right so an individual crow can change its behavior in response to certain stimuli and crows appear to be able to perform simple deductions that enable them to modify their behavior in the name of you know survival or whatever so maybe crows have a kind of consciousness that's closer to the human but again we understand what we mean when we use consciousness in this context we mean thinking but um, another definition, another way we use the word consciousness is I'd call like something like the, the political or the political moral view of consciousness. That's what you talk about in your essay, No One Understands You. That's like consciousness as the way a particular individual or group experiences the world. So you can, right. so, so in, in places like the so-called consciousness culture on the internet, right? The reality sandwich, you know, the kind of Daniel Pinchbeck, that kind of world, the kind of like... Sure. Yeah. Uh, They talk a lot about the evolution of consciousness. So the consciousness is something that evolves and that moral behavior reflects the level of consciousness that you're at. So Ken Wilber is like that too, right? He's like color-coded these different levels of consciousness. It's like consciousness as ideology, really. And it comes, I think, from a kind of romantic or rationalist idea of surmounting instinct. The more conscious you are of the unconscious forces in, in your psyche, the more in control you are and the more, a- the more able you are to relativize your instinctual or purely emotional reactions in light of a, like a broader context. Like I see what you're saying. So, for example, you know, a typical Canadian attitude, and I'm sorry, Canadian listeners, you know this is true. Uh, there's an assumption of uh, Canadian superiority, certainly superiority to Americans, which is cunningly hidden by a kind of compulsive self-deprecation. But it's this weird self-deprecation of ego where, you know, oh, we're just sort of humble, simple Canadians and nobody knows anything about Canada. And, uh, oh, we're also apologetic and nice and not like those Americans, right? Right. Exactly. Uh, So if we are adopting this idea of evolution of consciousness, that a conscious individual is somebody who comes to see what a relatively less conscious individual simply inhabits. You know, you just inhabit this sort of smug assumption of Canadian superiority. Canadians are so much nicer and less gun-toting and less religiously hysterical and so on than Americans, right? That's just a point of view that a lot of Canadians, and trust me, it's true, a lot of Canadians have that worldview. But then the conscious individual is somebody who is capable of seeing that as a worldview and not just as, you know, the way things are, as, as an unmediated reality. And so consciousness from that point of view is 
synonymous with a kind of cognitive disembedding or a cognitive trick of disembedding any given perspective from a taken-for-granted field of reality, which, by the way, also connects it to the kind of political version. This is almost like a 2A and 2B that, you know, when, for example, hip-hoppers talk about conscious styles of rap, they mean stuff that's like politically conscious, like woke, right? And that kind of wokeness has to do with the act of lifting your perceptions out of the consensus trance, out of what everybody accepts as reality, what everybody accepts as common sense, and coming to see that what is universally understood as common sense is just another cultural construction, just yeah. another way that people have come to think. And so consciousness, in a political sense, as well as in this more new age sense, means disembedding. Yeah, it does. And and you trace it in your essay, which we'll put in the show notes. No one understands you. You trace that. And you, you talk about this in Dig, too, I believe, your book, which you should read, everyone. You trace that conception of consciousness back to a kind of Marxist theory of ideology, in a sense. In Marxism, ideology or the way people think or the common consciousness, like bourgeois consciousness is basically this construct that's developed in order to justify and maintain a particular power structure. And so to be woke is to, to wake up from that consensus trance of ideology and to think about the way things really should be, which is, you know, the the emancipated proletariat world of communism. And right. that the ghost, the specter of communism that haunted Europe in the 19th century haunts all these political movements that try to posit a moment in the future where everyone will become hyper-conscious and then we'll be a big, happy human family and yeah. uh, we'll be able to surmount all the tragic, you know, shortcomings of history and all the, all those hurdles that have stopped us from getting along will disappear because we'll be conscious, cosmic consciousness. And, and I would like to point out, and you were kind enough to mention my book, Dig, one of the, very briefly, Dig is a cultural and intellectual history of hipness, like the idea of being hip from the 30s through the 60s. And one of the fundamental claims that I make is that in the 1960s, there is a fundamentally new variant of Marxism. I mean, it had been adumbrated by the intellectual Marxism of people like uh, Lukács, Benjamin Adorno, and so on earlier, but it really crystallizes as a widely available, not just an intellectual position, but like a, a thing that people feel. What I think of as a vernacular philosophy, right? Vernacular philosophies are philosophies that you feel. And there are also philosophies that you're not even aware are th you're thinking. That at least they tend to be that way. You know, in a lot of ways, the 60s saw one huge innovation, which is exactly this, the, is making consciousness a fundamental term. In some variants, even the fundamental term of analysis. It's exactly this act of consciousness that becomes the fundamental liberatory and revolutionary act. You know, an orthodox Marxism made consciousness like a new, unillusioned consciousness, a consciousness uh, that could be contrasted to false consciousness. You know, it always made that idea really important. But what 
is sort of new in the 60s is the result of a cross-pollination of a kind of vernacular philosophy of hipness. Except it's not really a philosophy, but whatever. Maybe more of a stance, but you just have to read my book to understand my terribly nuanced position on the subject. Yeah. Um, the point, though, is that with this cross-pollination of hipness, Marxism develops this offshoot, this mutant strain, whereby consciousness is no longer a precondition to revolutionary action. It is revolutionary action in itself. Yep. It's this moment where you see, for instance, Yoko Ono and John Lennon in the early 1970s paid to have a kind of an art installation that they 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 imagined and they executed worldwide in cities throughout the world and like I think Tokyo and New York and London they had banners put up that said war is over and then in slightly smaller letters it says if you want it and what that means to me is something like the idea that if you're asking the question, how can we end the war in Vietnam, this war that just kept grinding on year after bloody year with no end in sight, with no reason for its perpetuation, and therefore no real way of imagining how it might end, you know, that the question is like, how can we end the war? Nobody wants the war, and yet we have this fucking war year after year. And putting up signs that say war is over, what that suggests to me is the idea of like, if everybody in the world just decides the war is over, if that thought is in your head and you just really act upon that, if everybody acts upon that thought, then the war really is over. It's another way of saying, what if they gave a war and nobody came, right? Yeah. But in that formulation, consciousness goes from being instrumental to some larger goal proletarian revolution for example and it just finally it just becomes a self-sufficient principle in itself it does and it's because it moves from the political consciousness we we were just discussing and, and in in what you just said you've moved on to maybe a third kind of consciousness that we could call epistemic that's when i think that's when the marxist idea of of group consciousness marries the social darwinism that's pretty much dominated the first half of the 20th century, even in masked forms. Teilhard de Chardin, you know, the, the Jesuit mm -hmm. philosopher, the idea that, that the evolution of consciousness is built into the, to the evolutionary process itself so that we are inexorably moving towards this moment of consciousness. This consciousness, consciousness becomes a kind of telos at the end of history, a kind of strange attractor. Yes. And those who are woke or those who are in touch with that, they kind of beat the others to the finish line. And then they have to wait till the others catch up. And that's very much what John Lennon's expressing in a song like Imagine, right? If you can achieve this level of consciousness at which war becomes innately absurd, the, the scarcity of resources on earth becomes so, so self-evident and so present in your mind that, that the idea of exploiting the earth would... It's not even feasible. You can't even you can't even discuss doing it. That morality becomes naturalized in you because you've achieved this level of awareness that is like cosmic. That idea is, I would I would argue, a kind of marriage of a, a Marxian idea and a particular kind of social Darwinism. It's almost sort it. of like this is a game of uh, like this is a game of Candyland or something. 
Right. And the conscious person is a person who's rolled the, rolled the dice in such ways to end up at the end of the game. Although, right. except there's never, somehow choice is always assumed here. Chance never seems to play any part. When people talk about evolution of consciousness, it always sounds like, you know, like your job. It sounds like another achievement trip, something that you, the Faustian and striving achiever, right. um, has in his or her power to affect. Yeah. Yeah. And, Which is and it, like, there's all kinds of problems with that. But yeah, no, we, I agree. We, we don't need to, we, do, we don't need to like stick on that point, but I'm just throwing that out there. No, but it brings up an important point, which is the role that Eastern thought has played in this movement as well. The idea of enlightenment, mm. the idea that if you were just to meditate enough, you would, and we discussed this in our last show on uh, Gendro Koan. And, and, and this this appropriation of that idea into context where maybe it doesn't apply in the, quite the same way. And also the idea of that enlightenment is a state in time as opposed to something mm. that undergirds time, uh, yeah. that, that there's this this rapture coming. So it's like a hodgepodge yeah. of all kinds of old ideas, you know, this type of thinking, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> Christian true. eschatology meets Eastern mysticism meets Marxist political thought meets um, Darwinist evolution. You know, it's just, but consciousness anyways. is consciousness. In fact, is a word somewhat like hipness or like hip mm-hmm. uh, to bring it back to my stupid book again. It's the right idea at the right time. This is another claim I make in my book, is that the extraordinary story of hipness as a figure of intellectual history, it's extraordinary, almost mutant growth, is a function of it being, again, it's not exactly an idea, but it's the right stance, it's the right existential position for its time, that coming out of World War II, Cold War intellectuals are looking for a stance of disaffiliation from fixed and statable intellectual slash political positions. And they're looking for some way to be that classic kind of partisan review, Cold War intellectual, discreet, judging, critical entity. There's a wonderful book by Scott Saul called Freedom Is, Freedom Ain't which is my favorite book on the subject of hypnosis, other than mine, of course. Of course. Uh, He makes this point, too, that for critics coming of age in the late 1940s, early 1950s, there's also a great deal of symbolic capital associated with the African-American provenance of hypnosis, right? So for all these reasons, hypnosis just enjoys this period of frantic, fertile growth in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because it's the right thing at the right time. And my point is that consciousness is also the right idea at the right time, and for very similar reasons, because it's satisfying, it's scratching a number of itches at the same time. It's satisfying a lot of different intellectual, emotional needs that educated moderns in the late 20th century, early 21st century have. Yeah, you're hinting at something that I think we'll we'll hopefully get to, something that I, I believe about consciousness, which is that consciousness is almost a kind of empty signifier. When you really look at it, it doesn't ultimately mean anything, although one could use the word to mean something, right? So it's not like I'm saying that any use of the word consciousness is, is bad. I'm just saying that it's very hard. It's a very, very slippery word, which is, was your point. 
So we've gone through three stages of, or three conceptions of consciousness, the empirical, the political slash moral, and then the epistemic. And then finally, at the root of it all, or at the top of the pyramid, I don't know, depends which, depends on your perspective, the metaphysical idea of consciousness. And that's the idea that James is attacking here. The idea that consciousness is what he calls an entity, or what you might call in philosophy a substance. That consciousness is one half of the equation of reality, the other half of which is like something like matter. So this is consciousness as the stuff of thought, right? And if you side with, a, if you go for some kind of some form of idealism, you would say, well, consciousness is the ground of existence. And then if you side with a more materialist crowd, then you would say, well, consciousness emerges from matter. And James acknowledges at the beginning of his essay that common sense itself, so Basically, it's just hardwired into humans to think of thoughts and things as being fundamentally different. The apple on the table and the thought of the apple on the table when I turn away from it are somehow very different. The apple in my head isn't the apple on the table, and yet they're connected in a very, very important way. So what is so so what James is arguing is that this let's call it this ontic or pragmatic or contingent distinction between the apple on the table and the apple in my head has led in philosophy to a, an ontological distinction between the two. So that the apple in my head is made of a different type of stuff uh, than the apple on the table. And then if you develop that far, far enough, you will end up in the, you know, the modern, let's call it the modern perspectival stance whereby the apple on the table can only exist in your head. Even if you're looking at it, what you're looking at is a mental image of something that you can't approach. That's the Kantian stance, right? That you can't see the apple itself. You can only see a mental image of the apple. So that although there is a difference between the apple in your head and the apple in your optic system, the apple you see on the table, fundamentally, they're both made of something like consciousness, that, that there is nothing in your experience that is not made of consciousness. And that's the idea that James is attacking in this essay. But yeah, so this idea of, of the, the fundamental nature of consciousness is something that you and I have discussed in our emails and on this show in the past. And it's a tricky conversation because, well, for all kinds of reasons. But I find that in this, in this essay, James is doing something very interesting that's worth considering because I think it does posit a way of thinking whereby you and I, Phil, would be able to transcend some of the disagreements we've had in our emails about this sort of thing but it's very tricky and at first you could read the essay and think wow he's positing something very counterintuitive but in fact i don't think what he's saying is counterintuitive it's counterintellectual it's very intuitive but since we haven't intellected we haven't thought through our fundamental basic intuitions as human beings 
it's very hard to understand what he's talking about intellectually. Yeah, well, give me your first impression. Well, I would first, I would first ask, what, how would you characterize the differences that you and I have had on the question of consciousness? I spent a little bit of time this morning rereading some of our correspondence. Uh, yeah, and I, and I was amused by one bit where early on, I mean, I'd only known you for a couple of months. I said, when we were talking about consciousness, I said something like, well, I think your position on this is maybe a little bit more like medieval Neoplatonism. Uh, and, and without knowing your violent hatred of uh, idealist philosophy. <laughs> and yeah. at that time, we didn't know each other terribly well. And so you just didn't respond to that. But I like to imagine that somebody <laughs> casually calling you a Neoplatonist I'm just imagining you furiously destroying your, your study at home, tearing <laughs> the bookcases down and hurling the books across the room yeah. in fury. Yeah, tearing the uh, thousands of little um, post-it notes on my wall, like my kind of like <laughs> schizo wall. <laughs> just like, it's all for nothing. No, I, I, uh, I remember that. I'm, I'm really, you know, the further one goes back towards Plato, the less, the less hateful I become when it comes to to like certain types of idealism. Like I think Plato was more of a realist than an idealist. To, there's only one kind of idealism that really chaps my ass. And uh, that's what starts with Berkeley, the, uh, the Irish philosopher, and the idea that to be is to be perceived, which, you know, Kant takes that up in the Critique of Pure Reason. And he, he basically argues that, that being, that existence as we know it is, is always perceived that in every experience there's an eye that perceives there's no way that you can conceive of a world without this witness this consciousness mm -hmm. this transcendental consciousness so he's developing something Barclay said but he's also contradicting Barclay in the sense that he's saying but there is a thing there needs to be something of which we're conscious there needs to be something outside we just can't access it so he remains a realist in that sense you know, Mayasu in his book, After Finitude, and I, I recommend this book. It's kind of like the perfect marriage of the philosophical essay and the science fiction novel. I find, I find it very riveting reading. So Mayasu argues that whereas Kant famously described his project as a Copernican revolution in philosophy, Mayasu says that what, he, what Kant was actually doing was a Ptolemaic counter-revolution. So Galileo and the first you know, the early scientists, what they did was they showed the peripheral nature of the human in the, in the big picture of the cosmos. They showed how infinite the cosmos was. And then Kant finds a way to place humans back at the center by giving them the transcendental ego. And that, that the whole universe is therefore and thereafter predicated on human perception. So... Yeah. So, in fact, it's not a Copernican revolution. What Copernicus did was he freed the cosmos from the grips of a kind of Neoplatonic or Aristotelian anthropocentric uh, vision. Whereas what Kant does then is he, he enacts a counter-revolution that puts the human back in the center. So that type of idealism I don't like because that's not the way I experience the world and it's not the way I don't think anyone experiences the world. We don't experience the world as a dream. We experience the world as an event that is happening in front of us and that would happen whether we're there or not. Like, you know, the, just the, the basic kind of intuitive move that idealism makes, I don't like. And I always suspect that it comes from a vengeful place. Vengeful? 
yeah, vengeful in the Nietzschean sense, the spirit of vengeance, the reactive mode instead of the active creative mode that Nietzsche, you know, calls on us to to embody in our lives. Like, it's a way to make everything known beforehand. Like, you can't be surprised. For example, an idea like the weird can't exist in that universe because yeah. the whole universe has already been subordinated to the act of perception, the act right. of consciousness. So therefore, like... To, to, so it, nothing could ever surprise us. Right. Like Kant, in a sense, is the ultimate hipster. Because what Kant is saying is that no matter what happens, you can't be surprised. You can't be phased by it. You can't be astonished. It's all just, you know, it's all just ideas. It's all just mental images. It's all just, you know, it has no... It, if you were to disappear, yeah. it would disappear. Which I think, by the way indicates a kind of secret affinity between idealism and materialism, which you've insisted upon all along, both in mm -hmm. our correspondence and in these podcasts. There's a call back to when we were talking about the many worlds theory of quantum physics in our right. Philip K. Dick episode. I was talking about my problem, and it's not just my problem, but my problem with the infinite worlds hypothesis that for every possible arrangement of things as we know them, there's some alternate arrangement where some aspect is microscopically different and the infinite accumulation of such universes is what reality is. And I was complaining about that. It's like, well, this is just a cheat. This is a way that materialists can salvage their basic worldview. And what's essential to the materialist worldview ultimately is the idea that nothing can surprise us, that everything is at least theoretically explicable because all of the fundamental materials of reality, matter and known forces, we have those, right? So then the universe becomes like a giant crossword puzzle. We have the clues. You just have to you know, use them in a certain way. Yeah. And my objection to the many worlds hypothesis is it allows you to look at some genuinely puzzling things. So here's a puzzling thing. We just had a an eclipse that we were able to view from Bloomington. The perfect place to view it is like 150 miles away, but we got to see a pretty good version of the eclipse. Watching the moon slide over the sun is a primal experience. There's something so weird so weird about standing in a in an eclipse it's a, a moment of gravity you feel the weight of that and you don't know what that weight is it's a really strange experience but one thing that looking at an eclipse brings you face to face with and i'm watching the moon sliding over the sun i've got the special eye protective visor you realize how precisely the moon fits over the sun like precisely perfectly uh, it's like watching a manhole cover slipping in place into the manhole. And the reason that is possible is because the distance of the moon from the earth is such that the disparate size of the moon and the sun perfectly cancel one another out. So from our perception on earth, the moon is exactly the same diameter as the sun. Like exactly. That's cosmically unlikely. Right? Oh, yeah. And there's tons of stuff like that. Well, I'm not going to stick with the moon example, but there are all kinds of sort of cosmological constants. And I, again, I can't remember, I can't uh, cite chapter and verse, but there are various cosmological constants. There are various kind of ground rules about how the universe works, which if they were 
different, if their numerical values were just slightly off, life as we know it would be impossible in this universe. Or for that matter, the universe itself would be impossible. It wouldn't cohere. And you can look at these facts. I wish I had these. I, I wish I had done some homework and had these facts at hand. But then the problem is I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. Um, you can look at these facts and some religious minded people do. And they say, well, this is proof that God exists because the universe is such that, you know, if it were even a scintilla different from the way it is now, not only would we not exist, but nothing would exist. Ergo, God exists. It's been because the universe is so finely tuned to make a home for us. Surely there is uh, somebody who did the tuning. And the many worlds hypothesis can simply become a way you can say like, oh, but there's infinite worlds or infinite universes. We just happen to live in the one where all of those forces are perfectly combined to allow us to exist. But there are countless other universes where those factors differ by some tiny amount and there are no people or right. no organisms at all. And that what, just what, becomes... what that move allows you to do is to argue on a purely probabilistic basis that this universe where everything is just right, not only can exist because of the infinite number of universes, but must exist because of the infinite number of universes. Exactly. So, so it, it does away with the kind of the whole shebang in a, in a sense in one fell swoop, but it's also predicated on something that is neither provable nor falsifiable, something completely just right. random. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like literally. It's just, it's, it's just kind of a thought experiment. Um, right. And it's great. I mean, it's cool. I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. But the point is that there's certain ideas that we latch onto because they just allow us to keep our vernacular philosophies they allow us to hold on to what we already believe and that was my beef about the infinite worlds hypothesis or interpretation of quantum physics but now i've lost the thread of how i got onto that subject there must be a reason well, we were talking, talking about, about we were talking about how materialism uh oh yes the secret of, the yeah. secret pact it's like the hitler stalin pact the secret pact between materialism and idealism and, and that secret pact finds its expression in the, the interpretation of all phenomena as representation. Right. 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 So if you want to get in, like, if, you, if, you're, if you're curious to know more about that, dear listener, um, we talked about that in the, uh, the Aleister Crowley episode. Was that it? Oh, shit. Yeah, I can't remember where we talked about that. No, it was no, the we, Philip K. Somewhere. Dick. The Philip K. Dick oh, okay. episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, the problem is that whether you're a materialist or idealist, the whole world is just mental images. They need you to exist because as mental images, they need to occur to you as subject. Consciousness becomes fundamental. James doesn't like any of that. He wants to get to something else. And I find that in general, James's attitude, his philosophical attitude, he's kind of like the patron saint of our podcast in a sense because yep. we both admire him. And you know, we've already agreed that you're the reincarnation of William James and That's I'm right. the incarnation of Henry James, which is kind of like kind of shitty but i'll take it <laughs> yeah you got the short end of the stick yeah yeah um and the reason why that is the reason why we both dig him so much is that he's looking for a way to depict reality so as to preserve 
the possibility of the weird, which mm. is, and it's not just wishful thinking. It's not like, oh, he'd like to live in a universe where parapsychology was a viable scientific endeavor. No, it's that- Which, by the way, he was totally interested in parapsychology. I'm not sure our listeners would know that. Right. He was a lifelong enthusiast of psychical research. But getting back to what you said, yeah. we're not, it's not like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the world had the possibility of psychic phenomena in it? Therefore, I'm going to believe in it. No, it's not what that. Rationalists usually accuse you of doing. No, he's he's a pragmatist, and he's also what he calls a radical empiricist. And a radical empiricist is someone who doesn't discount particular phenomena out of hand. Like he lives in a, as a, as a philosopher and as a psychologist, he lived in a world where psychic phenomena occurred. Therefore, your world picture had to account for these occurrences. And couldn't, you know, it's something we talk about in almost every episode. You can't just reduce a phenomenon to what you think the universe is capable of of bringing forth. You have to, in the first part, we talked about that in the Asher episode, is that you have, the first step is to honor the phenomenon as such, and then you can look for what it actually is or what it is in addition to what it appears to be. Okay, we're putting off the evil day where we actually try to understand this incomprehensible essay. I would like to point out something. Okay. And I, I'm, this is total non sequitur. There's something odd going on with this podcast that there have been a couple of weird synchronicities that have happened to our listeners sort of in the vicinity of this podcast. Really? And so, yeah, so there have been a couple of people have written into the Weird Studies admin at weirdstudies.com. That's the email that you use. You can write us an email directly, or you can use the uh, contact form on the Weird Studies website, whatever you like. But we've got a couple of emails from people, and I want to read from a from uh, I want to read a couple of bits from them because they're uncanny. These are weird little things. They're not earth-shaking weird things, but there is something that happens when you start paying attention to synchronicities, you suddenly get a bunch of them. When you start paying attention to diamonds, incorporeal intelligences, whatever, all of a sudden all kinds of weird fairy-like phenomena start happening in your life. Anyway, so I wonder if with weird studies, if weird studies is becoming a force field for weird occurrences, let me tell you what I'm uh, what I mean. Let me let me give you a couple of examples. Okay, so one email that we received was from a fellow named Robert White. So he's a trumpet professor. He sent an email saying, "Enjoying the podcast. Any thoughts on Kevin McLeod or Mastermind Smelt M S T R?" MND, mastermind, minus the vowels. Any thoughts on Kevin McLeod's writings on Kubrick's The Shining? The DVD of The Dark Room 237 has commentary of that blah, 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 just mentions that. We received this email after we recorded the Asher episode, but we hadn't made any reference whatsoever, either to The Shining 
or room 237. So this is just a coincidence. So get an email from somebody, and we had just recorded the Asher episode, and this guy's like, hey, have you checked out in the Mastermind? I'm like, wait, I was, and I wrote back, I was like, oh, we must have mentioned The Shining or something, because it's just way too weird that you just mentioned that randomly. Nope, we hadn't mentioned The Shining at all. Uh, Just a coincidence. Yeah. Or is it? Or is it? Um, And the other one, and this is a a message from Stephen Trothan. Yeah. So Stephen writes, I've continued to enjoy all the episodes and was inspired to write again after the PKD episode, our Philip K. Dick episode, to share a quick story, thought, and question. The story is just a weird thing that happened on the day I listened to the episode. In the morning that I finished the podcast, on the way to work, I arrived at my classroom and noticed that the key to unlock the door was not working. I checked that it was the correct one on my ring. It was. I began playing with the key and trying minutely different positions in the lock. Then I began examining the doorknob, asking myself, had it been changed? Does it feel different or newer? It appeared to feel slightly different. But then again, how had it felt before? I had no recollection. This is all to say that the knob had translated into the Heideggerian tool that became a thing at the moment that it had stopped working, leaving me with no real connection to what it was like before. The oddness continued as I was told that there was no work order for a change of the lock, but that the alternate key I was given to try from the office also did not work. Okay, so a new but unaccounted for lock. However, the maintenance worker's key worked just as it always had when she tried it. With echoes of your podcast in mind, I continued that perhaps parts of me, I guess in this case my keychain, had shifted from Universe 1 and into Universe 2, and that the dark counterplayer had changed the doorknob during the night. If nothing else, now I have a story from this situation. Isn't that cool? I love it. I love the way he ends it. If nothing else, I have a story. I gave a similar answer to, <laughs> I was doing an interview with for Matt Carden of Teeming Brain, excellent website. Uh, blog. Yeah, it is. And uh, we were talking about, well, we were talking about sleep paralysis, actually. And I, I told my sleep paralysis story just as an example of something that you're kind of like dealt, you're dealt this crazy experience. And then you're asked, well, what are you going to do with it? Well, it's like my kind of answer was that, well, you can tell the story. And mm. by telling the story, you're just reporting on the the experience. You're not making a judgment call as to what was actually going on. But the story in itself elicits thought. And that kind of gets to what James is saying. The story in itself has its own being. And it's it's yeah. it's, it's sometimes it's enough. <laughs> sometimes just a story is enough. And it just takes one story. You know, like all it takes to prove the existence of the supernatural is is that a single report of supernatural events is correct that's all it takes like yeah it's true there there might have been just one supernatural thing that happened in the history of mankind maybe it was saint Teresa of avila levitating right maybe that's the one thing but that in itself already has rendered contingent everything that we think is essential and necessary (laughs) because if it can happen once it's like once for all time so yeah uh one story one experience that you honor as such without trying to uh, banish it is enough to upend the, the model you've inherited as to what's possible and what's not. And that's all it takes to live in a weird universe. That's how easy it is to make the universe weird. 
is for a single weird that's thing true. to happen to you. And that's why James sides with the position that the universe is fundamentally weird because there's just too much weird shit happening to people for the neat and tidy models of rationalism to obtain. So I love that, that story that he told the key changing. That's great. Um, and and the, the, the weird thing is that these things happen apparently just in a kind of random fashion. Like then you could, you could take a Jungian approach and go, well, why the key? Why the door? Why that day? You know, what's the connection between his listening to the podcast and his key not working anymore? Like, you know, like, but that stuff is, is another way, I think, another strategy for fitting it back into a knowable frame by interpreting the meaning of, you know, oh, it happened because, you know, my key symbolizes this and the doorknob symbolizes that. That's another way of explaining it away in a strange sense. And that's why that the the kind of literalist religious approach is just as um, limiting ultimately as the scientific materialist approach. It's like we were talking about demons, like that time that you were lifted and thrown back into your bed by this entity in your room, and your wife at the same time was dreaming of an intruder in the house. That story, gripping story. Well, you, then we discussed. Well, is it was it a demon? And we agreed that calling it a demon at least honors what happened, but it doesn't mean that we know what demons are. And that's the difference between saying I was visited by a demon. There's an attitude whereby that's just the best word you can find for what happened, but you don't know what it is that happened or what it is that was in your house. And the situation with like a, the fire and brimstone kind of preacher who's like demons. <laughs> and, he, and he knows, he knows exactly what demons are. They're like, like horned goblins that live in hell and that hate humans and want to drag them down to their, uh, to their sulfurous domain. So, so I like the way he ended his story. It makes perfect sense. And it, it works with what we're getting at. I think today, if ever we get to it. Yeah. We're not going to get to it. Let's be real. That should be, that should be, that should be another thing we do on this podcast, which is just uh, promise that we're going to, talk about a given philosophical text but just sidle around it until we run out of time and like okay we're uh i guess we're out of time we didn't really talk about william james at all next week part two of jf and phil's conversation on william james's does consciousness exist Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.